You know, a central symbol of Christmas is a manger. No, not just a Christmas tree. It's a manger. And the manger is a perfect picture. It's a metaphor for how in the mess of whatever our lives are or might be or will be one day, what is needed most is for you and I just to do one thing. Everyone just whisper one thing. Just make room for God. Just make room. It's the hardest thing to do oftentimes, especially when our lives are filled with other things. And this Christmas, our lessons will invite us to see how if we would just make room, if we would, in a moment, just receive this gift that If we would make room for Jesus, when we receive Jesus, he comes with a word. He comes with a gift. He comes with something to give. And we have a lovely gift up here today. And there's a word on the inside. In each of these next four Sundays, we want to unpack a word. And today's word, the the word of the day, (laughs) today's word is peace. Now, you may be in a season where you need a lot of peace. Or you might be in a season where life is okay, and so for you it's different. But I promise you, in life, you're going to need peace. But peace is not just circumstantial. It's something deeper. And so as a man, Jesus invited his disciples to follow him, to consistently make room for him. And as they did, one day, everyone say one day, he spent extra time reinforcing how God is trustworthy by saying this in Luke 11, verse 11 to 13. What father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, which is not the nicest thing Jesus ever said to us, but he said it nonetheless. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly, will the heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So we who are evil, we who are sinful, we who are good, not good like the Father, we who are fallen, we who have the condition of sin in our hearts, if we know how to give good gifts, if we know how to touch one another's heart, how much more will the Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit, give us himself? And in giving us himself, there are gifts that he gives us from who he is. So I want you today, as we journey a bit together, I want you to see humanity. I want you to see a mess. I want you to see a manger. And I want you to see God. And I want you to see in your own life, in your own story. As we talk about her story, I want you to see your story. And I want to ask yourself, am I leaving room for God in the midst of my own life, in my own season? And to do that, I want you to picture a hockey game. Turn the person beside you and say, pardon me? I want you to pick, some of you are like, I've never seen a hockey game before. Well, here it is. Two nets on opposing end, 10 players on the ice, two goalies, one puck. The game is team A gets said puck into that net. Team B defends so said puck does not end up in said net. And there's a whole bunch of rules governing it, but that's really the game. That's what it is. And it's played at the highest level. It's a pretty complicated game in the sense that it's really, really hard to get said puck in said net when you have said puck and everybody wants to harm you and hit you and take that puck from you. Now, 
it's a complicated, it's a hard game, like any sport is. But I want to now level it up a little bit. I want you to imagine the identical game. The only difference is every single player is on the ice simultaneously with their own puck. How many of you know the game went from being complex to downright chaos? Okay, this is the world that we live in. Everybody has their own truth. And everybody's truth is right. Everybody has, metaphorically speaking, their own puck. You and I are living in the wake of disruption and concurrent revolutions. The digital revolution, which came on the back of the industrial revolution, took a world that was complex and made it inherently complicated. But we're also living in the back in the wake of the sexual revolution that which took things as communal within boundaries to individual expression. And in revolutions, if you study history, what you'll find is oftentimes the most unhealthy and unhelpful voices are the loudest. And so in the world today, people often ask, why is it that so many people have anxiety? Why is it that so many people have the opposite of this? And the reason is because in this time that we're living in, there is just a generalized anxiety everywhere. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. Things that we used to trust to be stable are not stable. Leaders who used to believe in a predictable passion, in a predictable fashion, don't believe, don't behave in predictable fashions. Things that you'd say, I could never believe this to happen, happen. So there's this generalized anxiety, and then you layer onto it the own, your own stuff. The things that you and I go through that is personalized, that people around you may not be going through the same thing, but there's this generalized anxiety culturally, and then there's specific things that you and I go through. And what is being robbed from us is this word called peace. Yet if we make room for Jesus, there's this unique gift that he desires to give us, in particular for troubled hearts in troubled seasons. John 14, verse 27 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, peace, I leave with you my peace. Everyone say, my peace. My peace, my peace, peace, you don't earn it. I give to you. And then he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The only way you and I can live in the world with a heart that is not troubled or filled with fear is if we receive something that Jesus exclusively says only he can give. It's a peace only he can give. It's a shalom. It is a reconciliation between you and I or or God and us and then us to one another. And so the question I want to look at today is how precisely does Jesus give us his peace? Is this just a nice sentiment? Is it an expression? Is it nice that you can put it on the fridge? Or in the trauma, in the anxiety, in the hectic season, the troubled season that we're living in, is there a way that we can look that Jesus actually does what he says he's going to do? Again, I want you to see as we read this next story, It's not a typical Christmas story, but I want you to see the manger amidst this story. In the mess, 
I want you to pay attention as we walk through it. Who makes room for God and who doesn't? And in this story, here's what I want you to know. You and I are the woman getting thrown at Jesus' feet or we are, we are the Pharisees in the, in the crowd that doesn't see what Jesus is doing. You and I in this story are not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus in this story. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Jesus is sitting near the Mount of Olives and he's teaching, and then all of a sudden there's a disruption in the midst of his teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground, But when they heard it, it says that they went away one by one. Picture it, one by one, beginning with the older ones. So there's a following of influence that's happening here. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. A woman has been caught on adultery, and according to the law, she's in genuine trouble. Now, I do understand that if a woman has been caught on adultery, there, there should be a man who is equally caught on adultery. So we know this is not a just thing that is occurring, or at least an equal thing that is happening, but I don't want us to focus there. I want us to focus exclusively on her story. The Pharisees apply two portions of the law against her, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 20 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This is what they're saying to Jesus. And if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, Deuteronomy 22, 22, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay? This is what they're quoting. They're quoting the law to Jesus. That's who they're courting the law to. Now, data shows that only 10% of what all of us worry about, do I have any people who kind of would be admitted to say, I'm a little bit of a worry wart? Can I see your hands, please? Come on, come on. It's okay. Put your hand up. <laughs> data shows only 10% of what we worry about ever comes to pass. So 90% of what you're worrying about, you don't need to worry about. And some of you are like, yeah, but the 10%, that's what you're, I know, I know. Some of you are, that's it. The rest of your day's wrecked. You're like, 10% of what I worry about is going to happen. <laughs> Only 10% of what we worry about actually happens. But for this woman, no, 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 no. 100% of what she's fearful and worried about is happening. She's experiencing it all. A moment of profound sin is being now publicly shone a light on. She's been caught in adultery, and so she is now in physical danger. Her life is in physical danger. She's experiencing public shame, and so she is feeling emotional distress. And she is caught in a system of being used by others and not treated with dignity. All of this is transpiring at the identical time in this story. 
And all of this equals both personalized and generalized anxiety. She is filled with it. But again, I want you now to see the manger amidst the stress, the worry, and the anxiety. And I want you to see who gives room for Jesus to move and who maybe doesn't. And the question again that we're asking today specifically is not three questions. We're asking one is, how does Jesus fulfill John 14, 27 to her in real time in a situation? How does Jesus offer her peace unlike anywhere else in the world? First, we see in John 8, verses 6 to 7, Jesus does something powerful. Everything being directed at the woman, all of a sudden, Jesus absorbs. Here's what I want you to know. The more influence you have, the more careful you should be with your association. The more influence you have, the more you desire to be a this or a that, the more careful you need to be with your association. If somebody wishes to run for public office, whomever you associate it with, even sometimes in private, will become public knowledge. And if it's the wrong person or the wrong crowd, it will be used against you. And so oftentimes, we want to be very careful with whom we associate with. I want you to know one thing about Jesus. Jesus will always risk his reputation for any heart that is hungry to receive him. And the one way that Jesus is unlike anyone else is he never cares. Jesus is fully man and he's fully God, which means he is absolutely secure in the Father's love for him, which makes him the most dangerous person in this story. Because every societal norm that you could put on him that would hold him back, Jesus isn't influenced by Jesus will save the person that you don't believe can be saved. Jesus will sit shoulder to shoulder with people who we would go, wow. And then they say, in this day, why are you with them? And the deeper question should have been for those who were religious, why aren't you around Jesus? Why is it that they Want, why is it that sinners want to be around Jesus, but religious people didn't? This is profound. It says that Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And I've heard speculation around that, but it's just speculation. No doctrine should be made on what he writes. It's just speculation. The point isn't what he writes. The point is his action of doing this, all of a sudden now the eyes are on him, not just on the woman. It says they continued to direct their questions towards him. A gift that Jesus brings into our lives in moments of anxiety, of stress, of worry, when we're not okay, and even when what's happening to us isn't okay, is Jesus never leaves nor forsakes us. I want you to see in the story, as she is right there, Jesus is right there alongside of her. And he bends down, and all of a sudden, what was totally focused on her, she's still there, but now begins to shift towards him, even ever so slightly. There's this beautiful scripture that says that God who begins the good work in us, he is going to be faithful not we are always going to be faithful to it, but he is going to be faithful to see it through to completion. 
So oftentimes when you and I hear the word that God will not leave us or forsake us, yes, it's in this physical sense that we can see that he will not pull his presence from us. He promises to be with us. But there's this like dual layer to him not leaving or forsaking us, which means that he's not also going to leave you just in the state where you're at right now. That if we consistently make room through surrender, through confession, through obedience, through repentance, through yes, taking steps of faith to follow Jesus, where we make room for Jesus, he doesn't leave us unfinished. He keeps making us inch by inch and kilometer by kilometer more like his son. This is the work that he is doing in humanity right now. When you look at the world and if all you can see is mess, you cannot get Messiah without mess. (laughs) Can't spell it. The message of Christmas is not Jesus coming to make good people better people. The message of Christmas is Jesus coming to make evil people dead in their trespasses towards God with a peace and a shalom that cannot be reconciled by human behavior. No, the message of the story is Jesus comes to make us who was dead in our trespasses alive in Christ by a gift of grace. You don't have to post this to Facebook, I promise you, or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, whatever it happens to be. You don't have to. But pay attention to the story of Christmas. So the story of Christmas is, by your own behavior, what list are you on, naughty or nice? Oh, I hear that. I've got bad news and then I have good news. The bad news is outside of Jesus, naughty list, every one of us. The good news is that Jesus gives us a gift that transforms not only our circumstance, but our whole identity. Second thing we see in the story is Jesus does not reduce, ignore, or excuse the law. And this is so important because the law is given by God. And if Jesus simply ignores, reduces, or excuses the law, here's the problem. Now you have a dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And it's profoundly, it's profoundly, profoundly a challenge. No, what Jesus does in this moment is he reveals the heart of the law by expanding its application. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, everyone say he said to them, he's now not talking to the woman, she's there. But now he begins to address everybody there. And what does he say? Let him who is without what? Without sin. So they're focused on adultery. And so is Jesus. Except Jesus is not exclusively focused on adultery. He knows the sin of each of their hearts as well. And so Jesus is now showing that if all we have here is law, every one of us is guilty. Except him. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. John Piper says at this moment, when you look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders, there is zero grace, there is zero humility, and there is zero compassion, which means not a single one of them is keeping the heart of the law. So the most remarkable point of the story that we're in right now is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses. He changes its appointed punishment, and he reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. Because if it it just stays in the law, none of us are good enough. 
But because Jesus has come to give us a gift that we don't deserve, it fulfills the law in its entirety. Sometimes we don't recognize the work of Jesus in our lives because it's happening alongside of our mess. Some of you are waiting for God to evacuate you from. And sometimes his most redemptive work, sometimes his most powerful work is not to evacuate you from a circumstance, but to redeem you in a circumstance. It is to show you in a moment not just what you did and not just what they did, but what God is offering you in this moment. And this is significant for because we're, we're about to go, where we're about to go. You know, much of the got you moments in our culture play out identically as this one. We know we'll be treated harshly or hypocritically if we're guilty of what we're guilty of comes to light. And while this might be true, there is a greater truth if we would make room to receive it. And here's what it says in John chapter 8, verse 9. But when they heard it, it says they went away one by one. Picture it. Picture it. There's Jesus. There's this woman. All of it's happening. Jesus says that he's without sin, cast the first stone. And it's not like they all leave. Like, oh, well. It says that they leave one by one, beginning with the older ones. And now this woman was left alone with a man. And when this woman has been left alone with men, she's experienced profound injustice. Except the man who she is now left alone with does not see her as an object. Because both the man who she was with prior and the religious leaders in this story are treating her as an object and a prop for their point. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Never Jesus. And there she is alone. If the story ended here, with the crowd walking away one by one, if the story ended just here, in fact, this is where our culture always ends the story. Circumstantial peace. And it's a gift and it's good but it's not what Jesus was exclusively talking about in John 14, 27. Because here's what we all know about circumstances. If you're in one, you can be in another one. They show up again and again and again. Circumstantial peace. All the crowd moves away and then here's Jesus alone. The gift of circumstantial peace as they all walk away, is profound. But if the story ends here, it still falls short of John 14, 27. It is sentimental, but it's not transformative. Because again, here's what is true. We can look at the voice of the Pharisee in this story as the voice of the small a accuser. But if you have lived more than a year, more than a month, Here's what you know to be true. There is a spiritual enemy who is unrelenting in his accusations of you and about you and towards you. That the most profound accusations are not the ones 
that she is facing just outside of her. They are what she believes about who she is. The most profound way the enemy accuses us again and again and again is not in what we haven't done, it's what we have done. And the moment he does, all we feel is the same guilt, the same shame, and we're trapped in it. I am pro-counseling. I am pro-helping yourself a little bit. I am pro-getting some coaching. But I'm telling you, if you struggle with anxiety and all you do is counseling, self-help, and coaching, here's all I'm saying. There is a greater gift that only Jesus can give. And I'm not diminishing these things. Hang on. I'm not diminishing these things. I'm just saying these three things are not God. They are not capital S Savior. And in the crucible, when your spiritual enemy accuses you, there is no authority in I read in a book. My counselor said. My coach said. But what we're about to root in is when it gets not just out there, but in there, when you say, in Jesus' name, everything changes. But it doesn't change if his name is in vain. In other words, if it's just what you're trying to do because you've heard it, it's got to be something that gets on the inside of you. Many popular churches and preachers preach today an end of the story here that everything that happened to this woman was a societal issue. It was an issue of injustice, inequality. And yes, there is truth in that. Yes, Again, I'm not diminishing that, diminishing that. However, if that's as far as we go, she's not free. And she hasn't received a peace that transcends what it needs to transform. Jesus doesn't say, I don't condemn you, so don't worry about sin. He doesn't say that. What happened to you is so terrible, don't worry about sin, it's just so bad. Because if he did, then he's actually failing to love her in the way that only Jesus can love us. If he would have, which many want Jesus to be and do today, then he's only giving her worldly, ordinary, circumstantial peace, which falls short of his promised peace in John 14, 27. She has to live in this community. Jesus is just passing through. She has to live with what she's done and what has been done to her. But Jesus gives her a word. Everybody say, a word. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Including him who could have chucked the rocks, Jesus, because he was without sin. She said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Sin no more more. What is that? That is a welcome and that is a warning. You say, what's the welcome? The welcome is to this woman, oh, on your days forward, you have a word now that you can do warfare against the inferior words that are going to come your way. 
because I don't condemn you, when the condemnation comes, you can root in who I say you are, or you can root in what they say you are. But you are not now left without a welcome and a weapon to fight against those things. Yes, I did that, but here's what Jesus did for me, and in Him, I am no longer condemned. You have a weapon now because you have a word from Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be easy to live forward. I'm certainly sure if I just hypothesize a little bit, her living in that community, I don't think would have been a piece of cake forward either. But she's got a word. But in it, Jesus also is giving a warning, and here's the warning. Go sin no more. What does that tie to? Here's what Jesus said. For me and for you, that you can gain everything in this world. Every bit of circumstantial peace that you want. Your bank account is flush. You def- no. If Jesus came and gave you no financial worries, no relational worries, all of those worries ceased, Jesus said, you can get all of these things and still, if you don't go to the issue of sin, it'll cost you your soul. And that's the warning from Jesus here. It's not because he doesn't love us, it's because he's how much he does love us that he's engaging this for me and for you. Peace that Jesus gives is the word shalom, which means that I have been reconciled to the Father. Did you know what the early church used to do and even many church traditions do? Some of you have come through Anglican Catholic church backgrounds. You'll know what I'm about to do. You can say it back to me. I would say, peace be with you. What are you saying to what are we saying to one another? What are we saying to one another in that moment? Are we saying, I hope everything in life is okay? No, we are reminding each other because of the work of Jesus. The shalom of God abides. We have been reconciled to the Father. Shalom, peace with you, and may it also be with you. Not, I hope your life is filled with joy and merry. I hope it is. But I promise you it won't always be. And when it isn't, Jesus says that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. He is the Prince of Peace who alone can give us this gift. When we receive the gift of God's grace, we no longer live from fear. In her case of being stoned, no, we follow because there's no one else who can give us this peace. I'm going to invite you to locate your communion as we pray. Locate your communion as I'm going to read a prayer and then we're going to receive this gift of grace. Together, let's pray. O Lord of such truth as sweeps away all lies, of such grace as shrivels all excuses, come now to find us, for we have lost ourselves in a shuffle of disguises. And in the rattle of empty words, let your spirit move mercifully today to recreate us from the chaos of our own lives. For we have been careless of our days, our loves, our gifts, and our chances. Yet our prayer is to change, not out of despair of self, but love of you, 
and the selves we long to become may we find in Christ alone. Let your grace move in and through us, we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take it and eat it. And as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. And so let's partake together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so he comes, so let's partake together. receive God's gift of peace. All we need to do is make room for it. Here's what I promise. This day and every day, this is a gift under your proverbial tree. Any moment, any time. Why? Because as light beams through stained glass windows, so Jesus came to give us what Nordstrom Rack could never give.